Amen. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter 3. We've made it to a new chapter. Get excited. We, uh, yeah, we're right in the middle here and ending on Paul's first section where he is explaining that whether you're irreligious or religious, none is righteous. No, not one. And so he's kind of landing the plane on that in our section of Scripture today. And so he kind of gets to a rebuttal of sorts where he puts out some rhetorical questions that the religious people would have. Well, well then what advantage is there? There should be some advantage uh, to being a good person. There should be some advantage to being a Jew. There should be some advantage to being religious and moral. And so he basically begins to go back and forth with these questions. It reminds me of an illustration that I read of a man who was in the act of uh, going on a date and committing adultery. And so what he did was he decided that he was going to plan this date. He was going to go on this date with someone that was not his spouse. And he had pre-planned the fact that he was going to pretty much wreck his family, wreck his marriage, and go about this. But while he was on the date, he decided that he would leave a very large tip. And so... Uh, <laughs> it's okay. And so he would leave a very large tip. And while he was doing that, he actually even saw an older couple that was having dinner. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to pay for their dinner. Like, I just want to bless them. And so people were like, man, what a good person. What a great person. Well, the fact is, is that his good deeds, while, while they were nice, do not overcompensate the fact that he was going to commit adultery and going about this horrible sin. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, listen, we're all committing spiritual adultery. We are full of idolatry that is playing itself out in immorality. We've all cheated on Jesus. We've all gone that direction. And yet, as we go throughout life, we're trying to leave tips and we're trying to do good deeds. And we're saying, man, surely one day all these things are going to add up and be some benefit to us. But they just simply are not. Jonathan Edwards says, the slightest sin has the infinite amount of hatefulness in it enough to outweigh whatever loveliness the creature possessed. Blaise Pascal, what a contradiction man is. On the one hand, judge of all things. On the other, a stupid earthworm, a depository of truth and a heap. There was a man who walked around with a leather case that looked like a camera case, and he walked around town with it over and over and over, but he didn't carry a camera in it. He actually carried his Bible in that case. And one day some kids ran up to him and they said, Will you please take, us, take a picture of us? Will you please take a picture of us? And so he opens up his leather case and he pulls out his Bible and he reads to them Romans chapter 3. And he says, kids, I want you to understand this is the picture of your spiritual condition apart from Christ. So today, with that reassuring message, we are going into Romans chapter 3. And so I want to read it to you, verses 1 through 20. I hope you have your Bibles to follow along. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, 
their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we dive into your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through your spirit, that you would lead us to an understanding, because without you, there is no understanding. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Lord, reveal to us the sin that is in our life. Expose the things that we uh, think would make us better, and allow us to lay it all at your feet this morning, because we are hopeless without Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I'm going to see is a religious position is unprofitable. He's asking, what, what profit is it then to be a Jew? Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So these rhetorical questions are basically him going back and forth in like a court system. And he's saying, listen, there has to be some advantage to being a Jew. There has to be some advantage that God chose us, there, that he, he's done these things. He said, well, yeah, you were given the oracles of God. You're giving the very word of God. So if you want to look for some advantage, that's the advantage you had, but it has no advantage in producing in you a righteousness because none is righteous, no, not one. So another illustration of this would be if you had three swimmers. Let's say you have three swimmers and they decide that we're going to swim from California to Japan. We're going, to, we're going to jump in on this dock and we're going to swim all the way across. So the first swimmer has never even seen water before. Right? So you, you know this one's going to go really well for this person. They've never seen water. They've never been to the ocean. But they jump in, and immediately, blah, 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 blah. They drowned. Right? They're, they go down. Well, the second person, the second person was like, well, you know what? I've been to the ocean a few times. I took a VBS swimming lesson class. Uh, you know, I have some knowledge uh, of how to go through the motions of swimming. So this person jumps in, and they're off to a good start. And they make it 100 yards or so. And then finally, they're buffeted by the waves. They run out of steam. They swallow too much water, and... Blah, 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 blah. They drowned. Okay, well, then you have a third swimmer. You have this swimmer, and this swimmer is an Olympic-trained swimmer. Their mother even did water birth, right? They've been in the water since day one, all right? So they have all the formal training. They went to school on a swimming scholarship. They jump into the water, and they are off, man, and they go, and they go, and they go, and they go miles and miles and miles. And a few days in, they finally tire out, and they drown. Blah, 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 blah. They're gone. So what advantage did the third swimmer have over the first swimmer when it comes to the journey? Well, they looked good for a little while, longer. 
but it had no advantage in getting them to their destination. And so this is what Paul is trying to make this point. Listen, you had the oracles of God. You knew all of these things, but it does not get you to your destination. Only Christ can get you to your destination. So what is the advantage or what is profitable? You have the very word of God. Today we stand here and we read this and we have the word of God. We hold the revelation and it's not a revelation of how to fulfill the law on our part or your part, but it's a revelation of how Christ will fulfill Old Testament and has fulfilled New Testament, the law by his faithfulness on his part. So we hold the key to understanding that Christ will fulfill what we are incapable of fulfilling. God's inspired word and law for this, is for the sole purpose of pointing Israel and us to our need of Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's point. You need Jesus. And as you look through the scriptures, the Bible is not a how-to book that God has sent to equip you with some strategy or technique that would remove your need for him and equip you with the ability to master a religious moral performance. Yet so many times we read scripture in this direction that, oh, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better coworker. I want to be a better boss. I want to be a better person. What, is, what does this have to say? How can I master this? How can I get better? And what advantage is there to that? Well, you, you look good for a while, but it's not salvific. It's not a how-to book. We don't read ourselves into the text, but we read Christ out of the text. As John 5, 17, 39, and 40 record, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says to the religious people, you search the scriptures thinking that in them and keeping these laws, you will have eternal life. But these are only to point to me, the one who fulfills the law, the one who is righteous. So it reminds me of a scale system, and I, and I struggle with this because I'm dyslexic, right? So I had to really think about which one would be weightier. Your unrighteousness will always outweigh your religion. This is what Paul's saying. No, no matter how religious you think you are, your unrighteousness, the state that you're in, will always outweigh it. It will be heavier. That's a good way to re remind yourself of it. Okay, well, we don't like the word religion, so let's, let's change it. Let's say your sinful conduct will always outweigh your moral conformity. So no matter how good you can perform, no matter how much morals you can accomplish, your sinful conduct is still racking up. Am I right? I mean, we've, we've done a really good job of covering up the big sins, and we're thinking really good things about ourselves, but we know what's happening on the inside. We know that our sinful condition is eating away at us. It reminds me of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is a great story of how the Persians came in and took over Babylon, and King Belshazzar is in charge, and it's the story of the writing on the wall. Do you remember this story? King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Do you see how this is playing out? He is, 
He is spitting in the face of God. He's taking the things that were in God's house and he's deciding, you know what, we're going to party with these things and we're going to worship different idols with these things. And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Verse 25, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Weighed in the balance. We see that from this, that all of our days are numbered. God knows the number of days that you will live on this earth. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. Some it's easier to tell than others. But he knows, and he knows how many days, how many hours. He knows the day when you will one day enter into eternity. Those days are numbered. And when you get there, there will be a weighing. It will be your unrighteousness, right, being weighed in the balance. And unless you are covered in the righteousness of Christ, you will be found wanting. You will always come up short. And so then there will be a dividing that happens where he separates the sheep and the goats. And so we see that this is a prophetic imagery of what happens in the end when you meet Jesus face to face. Belshazzar teaches us that religion isn't weighty enough because you can know about God, have the things of God in your life, and even be surrounded by the people of God and still be in desperate need of Jesus. Listen, the church is full of people who have learned a lot along the way. They have learned a lot. They know a lot about God. They have a lot of things about God in their life. They are surrounded by the people of God and are still in desperate need of God in their life. Everyone's days are numbered. Our lives will be weighed, and he will divide the sheep from the goats. One commentator, Brian Chapel, says this, if sin has no consequences, if evil has no check, if justice never comes, then what good is God? And of what benefit is his grace? If grace is amazing, then it must rescue us from something. And that something is highlighted in the passage by these three words. Mene, tekel, perez. Mene, tekel, perez. Mene means numbered out. Tekel stands for the weighed and found wanting. Perez warns of being divided and cast down. Though secure in the world, those who are unrepentant before God will ultimately be identified, weighed, and judged. And so Paul moves on, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So everyone must repent is where Paul's leading. And so he uses Psalm 51 by David to point to this. He even quotes this part out of it. This is when David is confronted with Nathan the prophet and he's found to have fallen into sin with Bathsheba and it says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here it is, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David stops and he says, I must 
fully repent because there is nothing good in me. And if you are a just God and you judge me based on what I've done, I deserve death. And so I'm throwing myself before your mercy. This is where we find ourselves. When we are weighed in the balance, we must throw ourselves on God's mercy. True repentance of sin stops rationalizing sin. I just want to ask you, have you reached a point where you've stopped rationalizing the sin that's in your life? Repentance begins where blame shifting, bargaining, and rationalization end. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. So here's another rhetorical question that he asked. Well then, if the whole point of the law is to point out that I can't keep the law, how can God punish me for doing what he planned for me to do in the beginning? Wow, that's a, that's a great theological question, am I right? And basically he says, this is, not, this is not a good question. This is not a good question. By no means, your unfaithfulness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. It just points out that you're unfaithful. And so just because God has the law that points out your unfaithfulness does not make him unfaithful. As we read in 2 Timothy 2.13, he says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Although we may be liars, though every man a liar, God cannot lie. I remember getting asked in, at UTC as a freshman, I, I was sitting in uh, Comp 101 or whatever it is, I don't even remember, it's so long ago, and I was sitting there and the, and the professor was like, Jeff, you look like a Christian, let me ask you a question. I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian, ask me that question. You know, I was like, this is my chance. Can your God do anything? Yeah, my God can do everything. Can your God lie? Oh, got me. You know, I was in that moment. And so this is, I want you to, I want you to be prepared in case anyone ever asks you this. Can your God do anything? He can't lie. He can't go against himself. As R.C. Sproul says, we are all promise breakers. God is the only perfect promise keeper. That is how we live as Christians. We trust that God is not like us. We break our promises and lie to each other, but God cannot lie because his eternal being and character are truth. It is impossible for God to lie just because we lie does not mean that God does. Because we ignore his word does not mean that his word becomes worthless. We can't even begin to try to understand an infinitely holy, just, eternal, and trustworthy and faithful God because we are trying to view him and compare him to our own lying, untrustworthy, unfaithful, finite, and unholy lives. And we just cannot understand how truthful he is. God is faithful and true. This is good news. As John Piper says, God saves those who believe because belief glorifies his trustworthiness and God cannot deny that he is trustworthy. He cannot deny himself. Here's what that means. If you have put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, not in your own, he is faithful and just to save you. He cannot go against his word. He cannot lie. He says, I will save you. I will wash you clean. Guess what? He will save you and he will wash you clean. That's good news. Amen, right? Praise the Lord. There we go. Number two, a religious effort is ineffective. 
What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. What Paul does now is he begins to lay out the evidence that is in our lives. Our sinful condition apart from Christ is unrighteous. This is the legal standing that we have. Apart from Christ, we're unrighteous. None is righteous, no, not one. Tim Keller says this does not mean that every person is as sinful as every other person. It means that our legal condition is the same. We are all lost and there is no degrees to lostness. Like the swimmers, we're all sinking and there's no degrees to sinking. Our sinful condition apart from Christ is unrighteous. So how does that play out? A, our sinful condition corrupts our discerning. He says no one understands. Our discerning. We can't understand God, so we distort God into a God made in our own sinful image that approves of what we approve of and condemns what we condemn. No one understands. No one seeks God. Our sinful condition corrupts our desires. No one seeks God. Well, what about the people who are, who are seeking? Uh, don't, don't they seek after God? Blaise, uh, no, Thomas Aquinas was asked this, and he said... Uh, non-Christians who are searching for God, then the Bible says no one seeks after God. How can this be? Aquinas replied that we see people all around us who are fervently seeking the purpose in their lives, pursuing happiness, looking for relief from guilt and silence, the pangs of the conscience. We see people searching for things that we know can be found only in Christ. But we make the gratuitous assumption that because they are seeking the benefits of God, they must therefore be seeking God. That is the very dilemma of fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can give us, but we do not want him. We want peace, but not the Prince of Peace. We want purpose, but not the sovereign purposes he's decreed. We want meaning found in ourselves, but not in his rule over us. We see desperate people, and we assume that they are seeking for God, but they are not seeking God. He says, I know this because God says so. No one seeks God. So our sinful condition also corrupts our direction. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So many have wandered off the path. So many have strayed. No one does good. All are, are seeking their own end. As 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22 says, For if after you have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It is fruitless. It is worthless. That's why Jesus would say in John 15, 4 through 5 and 14, 6, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Apart from Christ, we are corrupt. Our, our paths are corrupt. Our, our directions are corrupt. Our thoughts are corrupt. We need the one who is faithful and true. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some have wandered off the path. And it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. It's all the same condition. Our sinful condition apart from Christ is unrighteous. Our sinful communication apart from Christ is deadly, deceived, and detestable. Verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. John the Baptist would say, you brood of vipers, who warned you? There's venom in your words. You're infecting people with, with, with religion, and, and your words are leading people astray. As Jesus was saying in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. J.D. Greer says, our words uttered in private are the best indications of what is going on in our hearts. Let me ask you, have you ever um, been somewhere, and then as soon as you got in the car, you talked about the people you were just around? You ever, you ever do that? Oh, your words in private indicate where your heart really is. Have you ever thought you hung up on a phone call, but then you kept talking about that person, and then you're like, oh, my bad. You ever been afraid that you're conversation is going out in a text, being written down, being recorded. If our words are not washed clean with Christ, they are bitter poison. They inflict deadly blows to people's lives and hearts. Christ has called us, however, to use our words to build others up, not to curse them and to tear them down. Our sinful condition, as Paul goes on, is unrighteous. Our communication is deadly and deceived and detestable, and that leads to a sinful conduct apart from Christ, and it's selfishly violent. 15, 16, 17, and 18 read this. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If left unchecked, we can see the devastation of human depravity on the world. History is littered with murder, death, ruin, misery, no peace, devastation. It's littered with people who acknowledge God, but they have no fear of God. As you turn on the news today, you can see the images of the war in Ukraine, and you can see the devastation. You can see a war-torn country. You can see people who are being murdered. You can see homes that are lost, you can see buildings that are destroyed. You can see the misery and anguish on their faces. You can see how people are being investigated for war crimes against civilians. You can see that apart from Christ, the world is headed towards utter violence and destruction. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. When they open their mouth, you can see the dead and decaying spirit that is within them. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Proverbs, the fear, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalms 14, one through three, as Paul has been referencing the entire time, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understands, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul is reading our mail when we are apart from Christ. Psalm 139, 1 through 4, the Lord, you have searched me. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have know, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows our hearts. He knows our state. And we are hopeless without Christ. That's why our religious adherence is incomplete. It's incomplete. Verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So now Paul having done all the rhetorical questions back and forth, after reading all the evidence that is in the life of those who are apart from Christ, he now gives the verdict that you are guilty when you stand before the Lord. You're guilty. We're all guilty. We've suppressed the truth. We've committed idolatry, and it's come out in all kinds of forms of immorality. We've elevated some commands, and we've ignored other commands. We've sinned, and there is no excuse, even if you're religious, And when you stand before the Lord, you'll have no leg to stand on so that every mouth may be stopped. A mouth that is silenced realizes its spiritual condition. It is no longer trying to rationalize sin or condone sin or cover it up with a religious adherence. A shut mouth before a holy God is in response to a person who knows that they cannot save themselves. What do you have to say for yourself as you stand before Jesus? I have no excuse. I, I have no, no way to rationalize what I've been doing. I have no way to even condone the actions, the thoughts, the words that I've said. I am exposed. You know everything about me. It leads to a shut mouth. I want you to understand that as we stand before him, it will be by his righteousness and his righteousness alone that we will be able to stand. It's Christ. What do you have to save yourself? Put my faith in Christ. That's it. Have you done that? As you stand before a holy God, will you one day say, I just need you. I need your mercy. Apart from you, my religious adherence is worth nothing. I know I tried to do good all along the way, but it it amounts to nothing. The way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and his God. This is by John Gerstner. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. There is nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification to the ungodly. 
You don't have to clean yourself up. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. But alas, sinners cannot part with their virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusionary virtues of their own. Their eyes fixed on a mirage, they will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water all about them. What keeps us from coming in repentance? Usually it's that we think we're good. Usually it's that we don't really see ourselves in light of the righteousness of Christ. That we think that we had some kind of a religious adherence that matters for something. Religious adherence does nothing to remedy a broken and sinful condition. As Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I remember when I was a kid, uh, this is back in the 80s, you know, when it was cool to ride your bike, not play on video games. And I was deciding that I was going to go down a hill without using my hands on the handlebars. I thought, you know what, I can do this. So I was just cruising on down the hill, and sure enough, that front tire just turned sideways. And I did my perfect impression of a Superman over the handlebars, hit the pavement, snapped my arm, pop, broke it. Picked up my bike, dragged it to the side, didn't cry because there was other kids around. Walked home, and as soon as I walked in that door, Mom! I screamed as loud as I could. We went to the emergency room, and sure enough, they did an x-ray, and there it was, just, just broken, right? So I studied that x-ray, and I decided, you know what, if I can just study what my, what my arm should look like normally, I can fix it. Sounds silly, doesn't it? You know, if I, just, if I just study this hard enough, I can see what it's supposed to look like, and I can fix it. No. I need the healer. I need Jesus. I need the one who can set me right. Because I am hopeless without him. You and I and our religious adherents will never get us right. This shows us that we are wrong, that we are sinful, and he is righteous. One day we will stand before him because our days are numbered. One day we will be weighed in the balance and we will be either weighed apart from Christ or in Christ. And we will be divided with sheep and the goats. Sin is a condition. Sinning is an outcome of that condition. So many of us try to change the outcome without ever allowing Christ to change the condition. Let me ask you, do you have a sense of need for him today? Maybe you prayed a prayer a long time ago. Maybe today you just need to come back to him and say, I know I've wandered. I feel it. I want to come back. Do you know you need Jesus today because you know that your religious adherence just is not going to match up? Will you repent? Will you believe? Because I got good news for you. He is faithful and true. And if he says he will save you through the blood of Jesus Christ, he will save you 
through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, that it shows us that we are hopeless, that we are helpless, that we are incapable, that we need a Savior, we need a healer. Be our healer today. Father, I pray for those who have wandered away from the faith, that, Lord, you would bring them back, that you would you'd break them, that they would find rock bottom and they would come crawling back to the one who heals. Father, I pray for those of us who get lost in this religious adherence. We get our focus on things that we think we can fix ourselves. Lead us to our knees where we will bow before you in repentance. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?